Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Vox Podcast. Previously on Vox Podcast, we had Mike Erie return, which yes, makes this did. one a little weird because we actually recorded it prior to Mike's return. <laughs> That's right. Just That's why he's not on this one. Yes. Yes. So just to give a little bit of a precursor, uh, we are talking with our new friend, Annie, and Annie is from Colorado, but resides in Scotland. And Bonnie, how did you how did you meet Annie? Um, you know what? Actually, my friend and fellow Vox listener Jordan um, knows Annie, and Thanks, he said, "Yes, thank you, Jordan." Shout out to Jordan. Jordan also introduced us whoa, whoa, whoa. to uh, Brad Jersack in oh, our man. other episode. Hey, Jordan. So, Jordan's batting a thousand. Yeah, Jordan, you're in the inside um, circle. Yeah, he is. So, um, Annie, uh, he introduced me to Annie um, as um, someone who could discuss Enneagram with us. And like, I was so excited because I've known a lot about Enneagram. When I started working at Radical Wellness, I learned more. Yeah. And it's really helped me in so many ways, not only understanding myself, but also relationships in my relationships in my life. So that... Um, it just, I think between the two of us and even Erie too, came such a topic of conversations. We're like, yeah. Hey, let's, let's get her on. So Annie does a great job in this episode. We kind of do a drone shot of the thing yeah, um, and talk um, big picture, but Annie uh, does a really good job in paring things down and explaining yes. things and sort of where it came from. Yeah. But let us know what other questions you have, because we'd love to have it on again. Yeah, uh, to talk some about some of the stuff more deeply. Yeah, Mike mentioned it on the last episode. Uh, how helpful it's been for him. Bonnie has been in it. I have been reluctant, um, but have recently taken the test and figured out my numbers. But yes. uh, I'm still fairly ignorant to the entire thing, and you'll hear that in here. Um, Bonnie and Annie have a great conversation, and Annie is very articulate and very knowledgeable about the topic. So she makes it um, very engaging for an idiot like me to engage with it. But also on top of that, um, I think that we learn a lot about, no, let me just say that I learned a lot about um, how to engage with my fellow human beings who are wired so dramatically different than I am, yeah, uh, but are still made in the image of God. Which is mm -hmm. weird. I think we sometimes get a little bit trapped in our idea of how we, I'm only speaking for myself, guys, but how we think about um, ourselves and how we think about the way that our brain processes information. And then we get yeah. super frustrated when other people's brains do not yeah. uh, process or function the same way. So um, to me, that's one of the things that's been the most interesting about the Enneagram is a detailed way of understanding the way that other people are wired and yeah. um, that there's, you know, at least nine types of, or I guess 27. With right? the subtypes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love what she talks about too. Something that was, it's fascinating is going, this isn't the way that we're wired um, are also part of the way that, you know, we've grown up. They're kind of our, our methods of survival yeah. um, depending on things that happened to us growing up or the environment we grew up in but we don't have to stay there. Yeah. So a, as a tool and a lens through spiritual direction of how we can use the Enneagram to sort of live out um, the 
to borrow words from Sky from a different episode, this like higher calling that we have and uh, commune with God in a different way. So I think that you guys will like it a lot and I'm excited to hear what you guys think. Yeah. So this is our conversation with Annie and she is out in a cottage on a farm. Yes, in Scotland. Quarantined in Scotland, which just sounds magical, but that's our it does. that's where we are. That's where we're at. All right, cool guys. Peace. Bye. Okay, so tell us what it's like in Scotland. Are people um, self-isolating? Do you guys have quarantines? Like, what's going on over there? What's the what's the energy of Scotland? Yes, the energy of Scotland is way more lax than mm. I hear it is in the states. However, um, these are also all of the people who did not rebel and go create a new country when they were being uh, when they were in a major <laughs> religious crisis. So. Um, you can really sense that inheritance. Like I've over my time here, I've really noticed how like this is the sort of just like, it's okay. We'll make it through. Just mm. keep moving kind of culture. And so, yeah, that's sort of what it feels like right now. And it's, it's funny. There are just like one of the main values is just to like stay calm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Keep calm, carry on, you know, it sounds that great. Thing. You know what, when you, you're, cause you mentioned before we were recording, so people didn't hear this, but that you're recording from a Scottish farmhouse. And so mm-hmm. visually I'm picturing that. And then with the stay calm vibe, everything, I mean, I it's know. all coalescing perfectly. Yeah. I feel like great, I should bring my quarantine visual. family there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're welcome kinda, to come. And actually I've leading. had a lot of my, I've had a lot of my work canceled. And so somebody recently, I also teach yoga and uh, somebody in my, one of my classes who is a sheep farmer recently told me that I reminded him of a shepherd and asked me if I would like to participate in lambing. So for two and a half weeks in April, I'm going to help deliver lambs. That's amazing. Oh my goodness. And that's great because awesome. I'll make some money because I'm not going to make a lot of money in April at yes. all. So happy to happy to learn some that is cool. know, tangible skills. I that love everything about really that cool. story. I was teaching <laughs> I yoga and one of my <laughs> like what do you, do you call them students when they come in? Is that is that an accurate Yeah, I don't know. Yo- I teach at like a yogi? I teach at a CrossFit gym. So okay. I don't yogi feels a little too much too for official. what's happening. <laughs> Um, when they come to my house, cause I have a studio in my house. When they come to my house, I call them yogis. Got oh, it. there you go. Okay. Okay. Like you're ma- you're sheep, matching the vibe. Sheep mm-hmm. farmer doing yoga, going lambing. Okay. So you, um, it's perfect. You're a yoga teacher. You will be soon a lamb person. And um, is that the official title? That's the official mm-hmm. title. And it tells about. I would about... like to call myself a shepherdess. Oh, you're... oh I think that's, that's really okay. good. Okay, good. A shepherdess. Yeah. So a yoga teacher, a shepherdess. And tell us also about your Enneagram background. Yes. So I would say of all of those things, Enneagram coaching and teaching is probably more primary. You know, the, um, we'll, we'll check back in with you after April because shepherdess yeah, yeah. might get bumped. It's, it's very true. So we don't know. Um, yeah. So I trained as a teacher in the narrative tradition, the narrative Enneagram Mm -hmm. in like 2014. Yeah. 
around 2014 to, to 16. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, so the narrative Enneagram really um, privileges people's, as, as a way of teaching and as a methodology, the narrative Enneagram really privileges people's stories and felt sense in their body as they tell those stories, um, working with patterns of type as they come up. So instead of just sort of intellectually understanding what's happening in type um, and in the personality. It's a way of really working with the personality as it's found within the narratives of people's lives and Mm. being really kind of particular about those. Um, Instead of, it's sort of the difference between deductive and inductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. So deductive would be like, okay, I know the type, now I deduce what's happening in my life. Oh, um, got it. But instead, it's like, oh, I know my life, and I think I resonate with this type. So um, as I sit and tell stories based on questions about this type, um, I'll learn more, we'll collectively learn more about the type through interacting with these stories um, and looking at the patterns between the stories, um, which have both similarities and differences. Oh, interesting. So it, that feels actually quite more holistic than um an approach of saying like this is sort of who i am and so everything i'm doing naturally fits in with that description yeah yes that's why i really wanted to be trained in this um tradition and what's the other type theory oh sorry what's the other type called just so like i because i don't even know so you said that you're in the narrative uh the narrative type is that what you called it Yeah, the narrative Enneagram, that's Mm -hmm. just a school. Um, So there are other schools and they wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that. But that's right. But that's really what the narrative Enneagram has um, put forward as a way of engaging with Enneagram work. Um, And yeah, and I mean, to me, it just really lines up well with Enneagram theory, which is all about the three centers of intelligence, the Mm -hmm. head center, the heart center and the gut center or the body center. Mm. And so there's a lot of working with the head, with the heart and with the relational space, as well as with what's happening actually in the felt sense of the body as we tell these stories. Mm. Um, and so I really appreciate that. There's always, it's, it's a way of, you know, I get really tired of talking about the Enneagram in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've encountered this way, but it's it's okay it's a way of language learning it's a way of learning the types but it's like you continue to rehearse these same archetypes over and over Mm. um amongst people and continually say things like oh that's such a four thing oh i'm such a four which i am which is why i'm saying four um and (laughs) it reaches an end of its helpfulness once you've sort of learned the system and the language Mm -hmm. then the question is sort of like what do i do with that if I just like if I know that then what then Um, why is it helpful yeah 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 and so um I really appreciate this way of learning the Enneagram because every time I go to a narrative workshop um Mm -hmm. or training or when I work with someone one-on-one um I learn something new Mm. because I'm not there to teach someone who they are I know the Enneagram um but what that means is that I know about a pattern Mm. Um, and then seeing how the pattern interacts with someone's actual life is really fun, um, because it takes us to the edges of what's known. Mm. And then there's always the possibility that we don't have to just be a pattern. Like there's always meaningful deviations and Mm -hmm. there's always these sort of intrusions and invitations from the outside. Um, Mm. 
so anyway yeah that's that's really i could cool. talk about the tradition for a while but i think like i would get really bored if i just went to like learn about any enneagram types right as concepts or like as a system Mm -hmm. um, over and over because there's only so much I mean there's a lot if you're going to study the 27 subtypes but um, then at a point you know it still seems like uh, at at, at any given point you're going to reach an end where you say okay what do I what do I do with this information what do I do next so for listeners that have um, very little exposure or knowledge about the Enneagram um, can you give us just like a brief overview of maybe what it is, where it was started and what, what it typically has been used for? I mean, it seems like there's been up until now, because I think people think it's a brand new thing, but I think it's actually just gotten popular. It's actually an ancient, an ancient practice. So can you kind of give a little overview of that a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I will say from the outset, I'm not a historian and the origins of the Enneagram are really contested. Um, Mm. and part of this is because much of Enneagram use from the start was oral. Mm. So, um, I'll, I'll start and say that when I was learning the Enneagram more intensively, I was working at a Catholic Jesuit university And the Jesuits, um, it's a Catholic order, were some of the first people to utilize the Enneagram in their spiritual formation Mm. practices. Um, But when I told one of the priests that I was teaching the Enneagram, because I taught this class Mm -hmm. for students, um, and it was all about sort of utilizing the Enneagram to name how their fears and desires were affecting their educational experience. Mm. And it was really fun. And as I was telling him about it, he sort of, his face fell. Oh, interesting. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? And he just was very confused because in his practice, they didn't talk about the Enneagram. It wasn't a thing mm. that you just went around saying like, oh yeah, I'm a type six. Because right. to it was, say it's such like a private, thing, right? yeah, yeah, it would be really private. And so I say this to frame kind of where it, what it is now versus where it came from. Mm. Um, he wasn't, he didn't think it was like totally offensive, but it was confusing because it's a new, we're, yeah. we are in new ways of utilizing this mm-hmm. tool. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons it was originally only an oral tradition, as far as I'm, I'm aware, is that they really didn't want um, it to get sort of sucked up into the humanities and the social sciences and made into sort of a, almost like a, yeah, like a tool, like a, right. um, like a Myers-Briggs or that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, like um, a personality test. Scientifically validated. Mm. Yeah. Not that it. Not that that's not important and not that um, people aren't doing some work in that right now. But anyway, so it, it started out in a more sort of esoteric tradition. You can find traces of it in a lot of ancient um, mystical Abrahamic traditions, mm-hmm. as far as I know, and probably others. But um, I'm aware of it in sort of uh, Kabbalah, which is a Jewish mystical tradition, Sufism, Muslim uh, tradition, and uh, in sort of Christian contemplative ancient sort of things. Yeah. Wow. So um, it was used as sort of a set of spiritual archetypes, which mm-hmm. at the time could have been connected to what were the seven deadly sins, but there were actually, there was a version of the seven deadly sins that was nine. And oh. so that's actually what we have is the, the nine in a way wow. deadly sins. I had no idea. Yeah. People are going to be like, well, I'm not going to repost that meme now. Because 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like no clue. No, that, that's fascinating. Okay, continue. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, Sorry. it's it's really about these systems that keep us that that both we are all endowed with a piece of God, mm-hmm. um, a piece of who God is. We're really we come into the world really connected mm-hmm. to and bearing an image if you mm-hmm. will, I'll use yeah. um, my Christian language, but bearing an image of God. Yeah. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean it's just sort of what our Enneagram type says or whatever, but it's like, it's like we are particularly endowed with ways of looking at the world. Things are really connected to gifts where, you know, mm-hmm. we're one body, many members, lots of different gifts, lots of different ways of being in the world, um, which are not just nine or 27, but more than that. But if we put them in patterns, we have these sort of nine and these nine archetypes also represent nine ways that we can sort of shut ourselves down from Mm. knowing, or we can both shut ourselves down and replace who God is. Mm. with our own activity. Okay. So okay. I'll, I'll give an example. Okay. Um, for my type, for the type four. This is exciting because Tim and I are also fours, so this will be helpful as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so like, so essentially, um, you could talk about, there's lots of ways to talk about the Enneagram, but one way and a way that I think is important to talk about in terms of like ancient uses of the tool before we get forward into, you know, the seventies when we're getting all these psychological resources attached to the spiritual archetypes, um, which are also really helpful and important, but, um, the holy ideas of the nine types for the type four, the holy idea is called holy origin. Mm-hmm. And it's all about having our sort, the source of ourself rooted in God. Mm. And that kind of knowledge to know yourself as being so connected and so rooted mm. in, in who God is, is to know your, both your oneness and also your uniqueness. Like this, like, mm. um, if I am an expression of mm-hmm. God, that makes me, that gives me um, a kind of uniqueness that mm-hmm. is unsurpassable. Mm. Now, if I don't believe that, but I have this longing for it mm-hmm. because that's built into me to mm-hmm. notice and to see, then what do I do? I start to create a personality, a way of being in the world that constantly asserts my uniqueness Mm. while I've lost my sense that I truly am rooted and an expression Mm. of who God is, Mm. Um, that that God has uniquely expressed God's self in my creation. So I become a creator. Mm. I become, I'm constantly showing I'm constantly manifesting, as it were, um, this need to create. Um, and this is where it gets really interesting because on the one hand, as a person, I know I've been given gifts in terms of creativity. I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm a PhD student right Mm now. I love to write. Um, that's a real creative outlet for me. Um, and many of my other four friends are creatives as well. 
Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between a sort of an isolative creativity and a creativity that like, if I don't create this thing, if I don't produce this thing, if I don't feel like, then I won't feel special. I won't be unique. This is what I must do. Mm. And I am rooted in my origin and in knowing that I'm freed up to express this without, um, yeah. So like without a bunch of things attached to it. Yeah. So there's a lot attached to it. And, um, that is, so the, the ancient use of the tool was in these spiritual archetypes and therefore you can see sort of these sins that get in the way. So, um, for the type four, it would be envy would have been, would be the type, the, the sin that's attached to the type four. And think about how envy relates to that sense of I'm special. I'm unique. If I, if I look around and I see other people that are special and unique, I could feel like that diminishes my specialness and my uniqueness. It's like a posture of scarcity. And so I always have to be sort of, yeah, it's a scarcity. I always am kind of competing then. Sorry. Um, I'm always competing then for this sense of specialness. Like specialness couldn't be something we all have. Yeah. 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 It's my holy origin. Right, 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 right. That's fascinating. So it's, it sounds like what's fascinating about this to me is that it sounds like all of us are sort of, we have this double-edged sword. Like we're born with these gifts, this way of viewing the world. And depending on what we do with it or our belief are in, if we step into um, this holy idea and each number has this, if we step into that, we're sort of set free from maybe a posture tell me if I'm saying this right, a posture or a sin that is going to weigh us down, turn us away from God, turn us away from the world, or we can, um, step into our holy idea, which allows us to take these gifts and these things that we have that we were born with and use it for something beyond ourselves, something for good. And we don't have to have all this stuff attached to it. Yes, except Okay. Yeah. It's so patterned in us. Mm. And like it's uniquely so... us, so like uh, us, we're going to deal with something so different than a seven is just by nature. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so patterned in me to even try and without, like I fall asleep to the fact that my longing Mm-hmm. to be special my longing to be unique it's not like i'm thinking about that all the time right 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 it's like a part maybe of you. some people are yeah but yeah. like sometimes it's just sort of it's my activity or yeah. my relationships or my it makes its way out in all these ways and and it's so normalized for mm-hmm. me to act in these ways that i have to sort of wake up to them wake yeah. up to the many ways that i have gotten into these patterns of proving to mm. myself, to other people, to God, that I'm beloved. Right, right, right. And right. and that is where I think the next steps in the Enneagram become really interesting mm. because these are the spiritual archetypes, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, but not everyone is having these conversations with like God as a part of them, right? The Enneagram could also just people use it in therapy. People use it in all kinds of other, um, non-religious settings. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
part of why that's possible is that in the 70s, this travels north because this was um, the people who brought it up from South America. Um, Ichazo, Naranjo. Naranjo gets to Berkeley and starts these practice groups. Mm. which are connected and, and end up becoming really connected in universities up there. Um, but essentially they combine these spiritual archetypes with what's happening in psychology, mm. um, in cognitive, emotional sort of behavioral and body psychology. Um, and they fill out what these personalities look like. Mm. So um, it's not just sort of this, talk about our relationship with the divine it's that um the way that you know being a four being an individualist a creator a creative you know those sorts of things the way that that makes it its way out into um a personality system Mm. and there are so many different ways of looking at it you can look at it through fixations all the nine types have different fixations all the nine types have different defense systems all the nine types are working with different fears and desires Mm. um and so these, there are a multiplicity, really, mm. yeah. of ways that you yeah. can talk about the nine types, but all of them are about however you describe what reality is mm-hmm. um, and whatever features there are in your reality, right? So a Christian would describe what ultimate reality is like different than an atheist, different right. than a Hindu, different, you know, all of that. Um, but what the Enneagram says is that it's these systems, these nine systems that keep us from being able to encounter reality as it actually is. Mm. Um, or it's these systems that become invitations. Our personalities create invitations and openings for us to experience what is real. Mm-hmm. Um, what is really real. Um, and that happens through experience um, and through contact with, with reality um, in, in new and different ways that our patterns sometimes don't let us see. Right. Um, right. So this would be for anyone who's interested in sort of like philosophy. That's what I studied in undergrad. Um, this could be a... Um, if you know Kant, Immanuel Kant, mm-hmm. he has a basic question um, or a basic sort of thing that he's working with that has really we've really inherited in the modern world, mm-hmm. which is this idea of the phenomena and the noumena. Mm-hmm. And so essentially we're always experiencing the phenomena. So what we know um, is in a sense, because of what we've experienced, but what we've experienced doesn't necessarily tell us about the noumena or the essential or what is real. So he Mm. draws a big distinction between our experience of reality and what is really real. And so then the question becomes, and I think it's a really interesting question for all of us. And and it's fascinating in working with the Enneagram. Um, Can we know more about what is really real? Can we know, um, or is everything just self-contained by our own sort of personalities, understanding its projections onto the world? Right, right. Um, right. And I think these are really important questions for religious people to ask, particularly for Christians to ask. Um, And I think that in each of these types, there is a 
really distinct and different kind of vulnerability because each type is trying to control the world in a particular way Mm. so that they feel safe or loved or worthy. And those are really the three different projects that you could split them up into. Yeah. And if the project of feeling safe or feeling loved or feeling worthy is what rules your whole life, it becomes um, self-encased in a way that it becomes hard to be vulnerable enough to experience reality as it is. Yeah. However, I'd say pandemics like these uh, really reintroduce us to our own vulnerability. Yeah. I would agree. Answer, um, when you, I want to go back to that question you asked about the reality that we experience versus the actual reality. Um, I'm a spiritual, I do this, and then I'm also a spiritual director, and we have um, done a lot of work or I do a lot of work with my clients, but then also I've done a lot of reading about false self and true self. And, um, I know Roar talks a lot about it. Um, he has a lot in his immortal diamond, but just in his book. Um, but can we use that same sort? Are those similar words to what we're describing when we're talking about the reality we experience versus what's actually out there? Like, um, so when we talk about false self, true self, at least when I do it with my clients talking about the false self is, um, kind of like that, like what I think my limits are or who I am. And it's this, uh, sort of this baseline. It's become something that puts me down or can turn me away or whatever versus the true self is like, is my higher door. It's my holy self. It's the, it's the thing that is actually true of me that God actually says about me and who I am. So is that good language to put to those same types of things? Are we talking about the same thing there? Um, when we're talking about false self and true self versus like false reality and true reality, you know, what's the distinction and are they kind of one in the same? Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that language as well. I think that, um, in a way they have to be somewhere together, right? So the invitation, so the invitation to the true self as it were, or to the really real, Mm -hmm. um, happens in the midst of, um, all these senses of limitations are in the midst of these fears, in the midst of these fixations, there's always the invitation. So the false self is not entirely false in that it's, that it's there and it's really able to listen, um, for these invitations. Um, the, maybe I guess the false self or the like lack of reality is when you think that those invitations maybe don't exist Mm. and that there's not a possibility that things could be any different than they are. Oh, got it. So you're sort of, you're stuck in your limitations and unable to. Yeah. But I actually, yeah. So I talk, I think a lot about, and when I work with coaching clients, I, I talk a lot about like, our vulnerabilities and some of our limitations are really real. Right. Right. Um, right. And some of our limitations aren't, but we think they are. So Mm -hmm. actually we usually have this weird flip where Mm -hmm. like, we don't think we have agency. Yeah. We think I have to do this thing. If I don't do this thing, like the world will fall apart. If I don't do this thing that this person will hate me. Right. If I don't, if I don't do this thing, like the community will kick me out mm-hmm. or yeah. whatever. If I don't say this right or, you know, um, 
And usually things like that are not actually limitations, but we act as if they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's other senses in which like we think we have agency to do things like earn people's love or right. earn a sense of right. worth. Um, or we think we can secure ourselves. Yeah. Like yeah. we think we can run enough sort of things through our brain to make ourselves totally secure. Well, once again, here we are, coronavirus. Like right. that's that's a false sense of agency. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my work with people is trying to understand what it means to work on a like as a human, mm-hmm. um, being truly human. Mm-hmm. And being truly human means being vulnerable in all kinds of ways we wouldn't want to be. Yeah. And being powerful in ways that require responsibility, which we also don't always want. Yeah. Um, and that's tough. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's really tough for Christian people who mm-hmm. apprenticed ourselves to someone who shows us what it means to be a human and that person's life ends in death mm. <laughs> and yeah. resurrection. But also that's something we don't have like um, experience with. At this point, mm, that's fascinating. So, yeah, so I think false self, true self. I, I like, I like the language, um, but I think if we think our true self is totally unlimited, I think that's wrong. Right. I think it's getting a sense of where the actual agency is mm. and what is really real yeah. about being a yeah. human and what am I really capable of, mm. um, and how long does that capability last in a sense? Like how sustainable is that capability? Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Go back. Can you go back into what you just said there? I think that is so true. Like we, when you said we, we, uh, we model our lives off of of somebody and who ends in like this, this gruesome death on the cross, right? There's, and for sure there's resurrection. Um, I don't know I was just reading this morning. Have you read Glennon Doyle? Do you like Glennon Doyle? I don't really know Glennon Doyle. Okay. I was just reading her new book um, called Untamed, and I was reading it this morning, and one of the things she continually talks about, and she's talked about it in these other books, but um, the model of, in life in general, but for sure as to what we're discussing here, of there's the pain, and then there's the waiting, and then there's the rising. Um, And so I think that I love what you just said about how sometimes when we think, okay, I'm in my true self, like I'm limitless. And therefore there are no obstacles. There are no pain. There is no, right. It's like almost can in and of itself become its its own limiting belief of like, if I just do this or I just do that, I'll be fine. And I'm not going to run into anything. Um, But in terms of spiritual formation, like, so how you use the Enneagram and spiritual formation, because one of the things we always hear in church, maybe growing up in church or even in sermons or doctrine, um, it always comes back to the cross. Like we're always saying that. So, um, in terms of how we can apply that with knowing ourselves and Enneagram, um, how is it, how do you, um, explain that in such a way that where the pain, the waiting and the rising is part of that? I mean, that's part of being fully human, right? Um, we really love to talk about the humanity of Jesus and like the miracles and the water to wine and the feeding 5,000. But you're right when we get to, and like Jesus did this to the poor and Jesus helped these people. But when we get to the death, we sort of stop. We sort of save that as like, that's his thing. Um, 
but when you just said that, it made me realize like, oh, we really can't count that, count that out if we're called to um, model him. So can you touch on that? I just feel like you probably have some really good insight there on how you use and merge Enneagram and spiritual formation in that way. Yeah, I, um, I think that this sense of the nine types or the 27 types as ways that we maintain kind of control of our reality Mm -hmm. is really helpful in this way. Um, so if the personality gives us this sense of self that we need to feel okay or beloved or worthy in the world, um, what the Enneagram maps out then is the patterns that we use to stay in control. Mm. Um, and it's not to say there aren't beautiful things that happen in the midst of that. Um, but what it represents then is a disordered understanding of where our worth and our belovedness and our security come from. But the problem, um, is that, when we give up these systems that have always given us a sense of control, we really have to practice proper, proper is a weird word to use here, but um, vulnerability and dependence. Mm. Um, And that's easy to say when you have a belief and experiences of being held Mm-hmm. Um, of feel, of knowing your own belovedness, um, of knowing your worth, of feeling secure. Um, mm-hmm. It's harder to, to really practice. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times these systems of defense that the, that the nine types describe really have grown up to protect a sweet little frightened child inside mm. of each of us. Um, I often refer to myself when I'm trying to be compassionate with how outrageously I need to control a situation or I see myself controlling it. I often will refer to myself as sweet Annie, mm. just like, Oh, sweet. Annie's <laughs> really afraid right now. Right. Yeah. Um, and sweet little Annie has learned all these ways to control. But the problem is that like in so many of the problems or so many of the fears are about, am I let for me, am I beloved? Will I be held? Mm -hmm. Um, and then if I figure out and determine that I will be held and I make that decision on my own, it actually cuts me off from relationship. And instead of asking in the midst of vulnerability, um, crying out, um, Mm -hmm. to a person, to God. Um, instead I get a self-contained answer, which Mm -hmm. also makes it unstable. It doesn't solve the problem. Right. The question of whether I'm beloved is inherently a relational question. Um, but the work then is to take, find, listen to any invitation that we feel we can listen to, um, Mm -hmm. and be discerning about that invitation to know our own belovedness or worth or security, Mm -hmm. um, to go down paths that are not marked out yet. Mm -hmm. The whole point is that I don't know if I am most of the day. I don't know if I'm 
really beloved. I don't know if I, if I were to make a mistake on this podcast and say something outrageous, will I just be torn apart? Mm-hmm. Like right. if, if, it, if it's not like very good, will anyone invite me to do anything anywhere right. anymore? Like, well, you know, and, and these are like, these are not, not live questions. Right. Like, um, and, and so, but in order to get the answer to them, the thing to not do, not that I don't want to do well or speak well on a podcast, but the, but that will never answer the question of my belovedness, but I could keep doing everything I do could still be like, everything else could be a chance to prove my, my worth in terms of like, oh yeah, I'm definitely beloved. I can tell because things are going really well in my life and people are calling me and, you know, and I'm getting emails and people are connecting me. That must be a good thing. That must mean I am. Well, actually like, I could just, right. Yeah. It just will never answer it. Yeah. So the the invitation, Um, I think, cause it's, that's fascinating because the invitation, I think what we want the invitation is to continually satiate this need. But what you're saying is the actual invitation, and especially in our lives with Christ, is into full humanity, is to feel this like big breadth and depth of what it means for the pain and the waiting and the rising. And like I just thought about the ancient concept of joy, like in in Judaism and um, in ancient Judaism, when they talk about joy, like we often use joy interchangeable with happy, right? Like, oh, that was so joyful. And it was that brought me so much joy. Um, but, um, in an ancient context, it's actually so different. Joy is like this big, huge word that is supposed to encompass the pain and the good. It's like the, the suffering and the redemption. It's this thing that happens after we've walked, like you said, down this path that we actually don't know that we've accepted this invitation and we're going to be thrown things at the, uh, the other end of it is where we find like actual joy. Um, but we just aren't used to walking that path, right? Like we're so used to the quick answer, the thing that satiates the need, um, and not this hard path in front of us that encompasses the whole thing, the fully human experience of it all. Yeah. And I'll say that's, unfortunately, that is how a lot of people use the Enneagram is as another quick fix. So, um, we in the Western world often equate sort of knowledge with having sort of solved a problem. Yes. So if I'm able to describe all of these things about myself, then surely I've solved the problem. Yeah. 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 But actually it, it, the question is whether or not I have all the language to talk about it or not. Mm -hmm. The question is still live in my body. Yeah. That's good. Am I beloved? Mm-hmm. And there is no, like, that's why the Enneagram is not, I mean, it, it can help and it can meet us in our religious tradition, but it's not a religious tool because it doesn't provide the hope. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't tell, I mean, there's a lot of, um, <laughs> you could have lots of different, um, beliefs about what is reality and what you can expect from God, from the divine, from the universe, however mm-hmm. you want to cash it out. But all the different ways you cash it out, you can expect different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that's why I, I mean, I love to use the Enneagram in communities of hope because I actually just don't know what sustains Enneagram work. 
Mm. in in its most sort of difficult version which is that we get down into these basic questions and vulnerabilities that we're holding in our bodies what sustains that continued work Mm. um what kind of hope does um Mm. and maybe that's why some people don't that might be a reason that some people don't like it um Mm. but it's yeah I mean, well, also, I, if we want to I, talk about it as invitations, who's inviting us? Like, yeah, what's the, right, like, where are the invitations coming from? Yeah. And no, who that's are we really responding good. to? And who is it that we're responding to? And when you say like, so this is, this has so many impacts on such uh, bigger levels and we touched on it a little bit, but like, for example, um, I think we're so busy and we're so, um, like you said, some of these, um, limitations or sins, um, are so deeply woven in us. I can go throughout my whole day. And if I stop and look and I really take an inventory, I realize how calculated the things I do are to keep some of the big questions, to keep some of the vulnerabilities, to keep some of the pain at bay. Um, even though I'm a four and I also have the capacity to feel deeply, I like to do that on my own terms. <laughs> so I'm not always going to, you know, invite those things in. Um, but I think that's true for most people, for most everybody. Like we, even if we're all born, like you said, innately with these different sets of ideas and views of the world, um, because sometimes the invitation, although ultimately may lead to redemption, it can have, it can be painful as well. We want to keep that at bay. So um, in a time like this, where everything is uplifted, like our foundations are shaken, like the economy's tanking, we can't do stuff that we normally would do. Um, even we can't have connections like we normally would. Um, a lot of those things we put in place to keep the questions, the vulnerability, the fear, the, the anger, the pain at bay, those are gone. So I think for some of us, we are experiencing these new feelings and we're like, where did that come from? And it's sort of always there anyway. But this type of emergency um, exposes those things. So what advice do you give? This is like a two-part question, but like what if, obviously we're all going to respond to something like this differently. Um, what advice do you have to give people empathy to how uh, people we live with, people who are see the world differently than we do, um, are responding sometimes differently than we are. And um, do you have like any advice of just like even a five minute, two minute thing of like, hey, here's something you could do each day, even if it's just sit in your closet for two minutes quietly um, to sort of be able to come in touch with those vulnerabilities and that fear and that and to welcome it in as as a uh, as a healing fire that ultimately will um, will help us in the long run. If that makes, if that question, that was a long question, Annie. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So first I'll say, yes, I will affirm. Yes. We all encounter these things so differently. And, um, the Enneagram does help us explore some of those sort of psychological, like major psychological differences. Um, in fact, I just spoke with a friend today. She's an Enneagram type six. Mm -hmm. And these tend to be um, types that 
their anxiety is really on the surface a lot of the time. Mm. Um, they're often preparing for worst case scenarios, all those sorts of things. So today I was talking with this friend and she was like, I was born for this. <laughs> like, and it's funny because you would think, and some sixes are probably freaking out, but in right. her case, she feels like, oh, well, finally, like, Everyone else's anxiety matches mine. Right. It's like, like, and another six friend actually do. was like, this is cathartic. Like, oh, the fact that we're in a worst case scenario is like, oh, my anxiety, everything, like all these things I felt anxious about, they're real. They're real. <laughs> so, and my so body and my brain know what to do here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was fascinating. And then, you know, at my, so like, I'm, I go to a gym here. And they're making decisions. Not everything's closed in the UK. So they're making all these decisions about like whether or not they close. And I don't do Enneagram work with people at my gym, but I would say a lot of people who I would characterize as type sevens are like frustrated that things are getting closed Mm. because sevens are like positive future thinkers, everything they can be, not Uh all sevens would respond this way, but many could just be like, Hey, let's be like, come on, let's just let's keep going as things are like, don't limit me. I hate the limit. I hate the limitations of quarantine. Like yeah. only yeah. the only people who are sane here are the people who aren't quarantining. They're like right. living into their freedom kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, which again, not all sevens will respond that way. I know another seven who does not think that way, but some of that is, which if you want to get deep into Enneagram theory, guys go into the instinctual subtypes, but some Mm. of that has to do with whether or not you're a self-preservation, a one-to-one or a social subtype of your type. Um, but yeah, so all that to say, you have these vastly different responses. Some people are really concerned with the way that this affects their, their first thought is like, not just about them, but how it affects the most vulnerable in society. Mm -hmm. What is the right thing to do? You know, you could, you could think about it through, like you could tell the story of this crisis through the questions of each type. Uh, That's fascinating. Yeah. The one, the ones could be asking like, what's the right thing to do here? The twos could be asking, how can I help? The threes are asking what's going to be the most successful way of dealing with this crisis. Fours are saying, how is everyone feeling? Fives are like, thank God I get to self-isolate. Sixes are like, I've been preparing for this my whole lifetime. Who wants to see my, like, crisis plan, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Sevens are like, why are you trying to put all these limits and restrictions on me? Eights are like, how do we protect the most vulnerable in our society? Um, And nines are like, how do we, like, have peaceful relationships in the midst of all this right Mm, so this is a really um that's very condensed there are many other questions that the different types might be asking but but it's that's an interesting thing Mm -hmm. to notice if you're just starting to get into the enneagram maybe notice what are the main kinds of questions you're asking Mm. and what are the questions that you're really frustrated by yeah like yeah and, and then just be interested. Don't you don't need to build a case about why. And that's what we tend to do in moments like this when there's a lot of tension is build a case against like why my way of seeing things is right. Right. But you right. essentially like. In we a need moment, all like, those questions. Right we now. need all those questions. And <laughs> yeah. some of their answers yeah. might be in conflict, but mm. it doesn't mean that the origin of the question is bad. It's just that it may not be the best for everyone, but we need to think right. about how, how can we, you know, like 
for instance, I said the thing about the sevens and the quarantining and maybe quarantine is what actually needs to happen, but we really need those creative free minds that think about freedom to think about how, how do we enjoy and get creative and feel a sense of freedom, even within, you know, our four walls. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Can I ask a couple of like basic questions if I can? Just because yeah. I'm very new to all this stuff and I'm tracking mostly with what you guys are saying and I like it. I think it's very encouraging. I'm trying to, so just correct me if I'm wrong with some of this stuff because some people have never taken the Enneagram and they're like, all right, all right, everyone's been telling me to do this. I'm going to go log on and I'm going to take the test. I'm going to find out my number uh, and then, and but kind of the hows and whys that they, why this is helpful or that kind of stuff. So we mentioned Myers-Briggs and and there's been, you know, there's the color testing and there's these different Mm. things that have been personality tests over the years. And and I've heard that as like a, I don't, I'm not interested in taking another, um, another personality, whatever. But I remember like, so in the early two thousands when like the, or maybe it was the late nineties, the resurgence of like the love languages came around. Oh yeah. And I was like, how often you try to love somebody. So like my wife and I are, totally different love languages from what I remember from that time period and learning through like marriage and stuff of not loving her the way that I expect to be loved and learning how to love her correctly based on the way that she receives love and the way that she sees love, um, was like a, you know, it seems very basic, but learning that I was like, Oh, obviously she did, you know, this is how I, I received this. And to her, it means it's kind of nonsense because she receives it this total way. Right. So in one sense, I see the Enneagram and understanding and how you guys just framed um, how everyone responds differently and how all those are, how we do need all those responses and how just different humans are from each other and how great that is and how it builds this wonderfully different painted community, you know, tapestry of different uh, hearts and minds. I see that as a strength, right? Is that, mm-hmm. am I, am I getting that correctly? Like even just understanding how different people are and how they interact and react to things. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, are you saying, um, that each of the types can be seen as like a unique and beautiful and important expression. Yeah. Um, And knowing how to interact with those, like me being a four and then I forget what my wife is and I don't know anything outside of like that. I'm a four or five, I think. Oh, four wing thing was. Yeah. Like you just talking about like the, I like, great. I get uh, an excuse to isolate. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, Like you're saying, um, Tim, like building empathy for each other and understanding like, Oh, she's inherently seeing the world this way. Exactly. And I I see that as such a constructive tool for Mm -hmm. coexisting in on this planet with, you know, 7 billion different people. Yeah. This is a great way of understanding what makes so-and-so tick because they are ticking differently. They were created Mm -hmm. differently than I was. And then this idea that we're all created in the image of God, that means that we're all reflections of God, even in our differences, which is also fascinating. And the other thing I was thinking too, is when you were talking about this reaction to the seven deadly sins thing, I think that's Mm. really fascinating or the nine deadly sins, which is even more fascinating because I've never heard that before. And with the fours being envy, um, I remember, so Mike Erie, who is the um, host and kind of founder of this podcast, 
he gave a sermon a long time ago and he was going through, um, I think it was the 10 commandments and he was kind of, he was breaking it down that for every thou shalt not, there's a thou shalt. Mm. And I thought that was such a fascinating way of looking at it. And, um, we just, the last episode of this podcast, we just talked with somebody about, we were talking about hell and judgment and how so many of us grew up, um, seeking God out of a fear of torment and how opposite that is from a message of love and inclusion and that kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. I kind of, so you can tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but I see, um, when I look at like the seven deadly sins and this is breaking it down to very basic language. So, um, uh, we, we want to avoid envy. We want to avoid anger. We want to avoid lust. And, And it's for the reasons of, it's it's just framed in a very negative context yeah but in understanding my enneagram and understanding uh why why envy is something that i um might struggle with it's more about understanding myself and leaning into the way that i am built rather than um focusing on what i should avoid does that make sense Yes. I'm trying yeah. to process this in real time. No, <laughs> no this I is love really it. This helpful. is great. Yeah. This is really helpful because this is exactly, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when people come into coaching work with me, they think we're going to sort of like figure out how to get out of envy, how to get yeah. out of anger, how to, but actually the first, it's always, there's, um, I use an image and actually maybe this will go back to one of the questions you would ask Bonnie, but I use this image sometimes cause I'll sometimes do sort of like visualization stuff to help people understand yeah. this process. And, um, often I'll have people visualize that they're in a room, they're in a room that feels safe that feels like they know it. Sometimes they like create one and sometimes it's a room that they know. And then they hear a knock at the door. And sometimes they don't know what the knock is at first, but sometimes we're working with a concept like anger or envy that they feel really familiar with. Um, And we have them imagine that this feeling is knocking at the door. And consciously invited in so Mm. that they know I'm not envy. I'm not anger, Mm. but it's here Mm. and it's here. And with it, it's bringing all kinds of things to tell me. Yeah. And so we consciously bring for me, it would be consciously bring envy into the room and sort of interview, get to know, appreciate why it's here. For me, in appreciating envy, it's not always this way. Sometimes I'm surprised. Sometimes I'm surprised by the particularity of why envy is there. Um, It's not just like, I don't know my belovedness. It's like, no, in this one relationship right now, I feel like like I am this small. And so envy's here, and it's here all the time, even though I'm really struggling in this one relationship, and now it's just sort of um, getting really loud, and I'm starting to compare myself, and I'm competing with other people, even though I don't care about those other people or, like, that competition. It's just this one little place where I have really lost a sense of my belovedness, and I'm feeling grief. Mm. And, and when you start to listen to envy, then envy might introduce you to other voices like grief, like anxiety, like mm. whatever. Cause I can also get envious of people's money 
because mm-hmm. I have often not ha- felt like I had enough. Yeah. And so then sort of like if, and then I'll tell these weirdo stories about like, if I was beloved, then I would have more money. God would have blessed me with this money. Right. This is right. it's right. like weird stuff that, that sort you're of, like, wait, I don't actually believe that. But yeah. For whatever reason but, that feels true. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, we avoid having to think about it because we get caught in these cycles of that envy and the behavior that the envy takes us to. So Mm. then if we slow it down, we take a pause, we listen to the envy. We don't try to banish the envy. This is this whole punishment mindset that we can often get caught up in Christian communities, like envy, sin, bad. And it's like, well, yeah, no, the envy is not good, but it's good in the sense that it's showing us how distant we feel from this person Mm. or how much we lack a sense of being loved or whatever the, it could, you know, we're really talking about the fours a lot here today, but it could be with (laughs) any other fear or any other emotion about this rather than just being like, this person makes me feel jealous. So I'm just going to cut them out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that is, that's the invitation, right? Like we could view it as this bad mentality versus a teaching. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking at all this through like a posturing. Yeah. Well, and Tim, it's like how last week our guest, Brad Jersak, when he talked about, or this week, I get confused about the weeks, but anyways, (laughs) when we had Brad Jersak on and he was talking about God's love, he's like, it is the Mm -hmm. love, but it's also the fire. Like Mm. it, it loves, but it also teaches same type of thing, I think is what you're saying here. That's what, I mean, I think that's what being a person in the world would have to teach you. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I think love has to teach us that. Because Mm -hmm. it turns out that so many of the ways that we relate to people are ways of asserting our own worth, asserting our own belovedness, asserting security in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But when we really move to love, there's a real vulnerability there Mm -hmm. that can undo all of those patterns. Um, But it is scary to do that. Mm -hmm. And it is always a question. Yeah. Because we don't live in a world where people can perfectly love us. So we have all these wounds, really. Um, And I think it's part of the reason that vulnerability, why why loving people, um, and loving people in a certain way. And then why it is so important. And then why abuse is so terrible, Mm. um, because it really like right on the place where that relational vulnerability exists, Mm. it creates a wound and it's the wound that we would have already been afraid of. Yeah. But then it just deepens. It makes it more real. Mm-hmm. Um, gives us a body memory, gives us a history mm-hmm. of yeah. having been wounded in the very place that we're made to relate and the very yeah. place we're made to be vulnerable. Yeah. And so how to be vulnerable on the site of a wound? Yeah. Mm. I mean, mm. and, and it's why we also have to be careful with our Enneagramming. I'll just say, and I'll caution because mm-hmm. what can happen is that people treat you know, you learn about the fears of each of these types and you learn about the patterns. And sometimes these patterns can be maddening in other people. Mm. You see them when you start to see them, you're like, Oh my gosh, get out. Like stop acting that way. Stop it. This is bad for you. This is bad for us. This is bad for relationships. This is bad for our community. Um, and that can be true. And that person has built up those defenses for Mm. any number of reasons that we don't necessarily know about. And it is always hard to 
come to vulnerability to try something different, to accept and receive an invitation to our worth, our belovedness, our security, when none of those things are assured. Yeah. And, and I actually, I mean, I, I wrote, um, a paper for my theology masters about this, like about how, um, reconciling with God or with one another is, and Christian reconciliation is just like actually devastatingly difficult. Um, and requires a level of dependence that is really hard because we're not assured safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we have to be, that is just what it feels like to be a human in the world. Mm -hmm. And so like, and, and I think this is part of the reason that, um, a wonderful doctrine of the Holy spirit becomes important. Like that we don't force ourselves into vulnerability and into dependence. Like we also have to sort of ask for the strength and for the people and for the moments, Mm. um, because they're not in every moment. And, um, Enneagramming could make us think that like Mm -hmm. we could assume that, Oh, Annie, like you are for, you're always trying, you know, you're, you should know your own belovedness. Stop comparing yourself. Well, Mm. actually like not every moment is, the like every moment in a sense is an invitation and then in another sense there are moments that are primed and Mm -hmm. um resonating with invitation um in a way that i don't control um and so that's sort of that i wonder if that is maybe kind of part of the divine dance that roar would talk about Mm -hmm. um yeah 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 I think that's so good. Um, I love that. And I love the idea too, of like when we're waking up, when you're talking about this, like what questions are sort of stirring in you or what questions frustrating you is, um, something I like to do normally, but I'm doing it more during this time where some of these things are coming up. Right. And some of the, like the divine dance, like, cause I have moments where I see an invitation there and I have moments where I don't, um, I like to remind myself that every single one of us is waking up a different person than we were yesterday and to a different world than we did yesterday that we went to bed with. And, um, that I'm always just saying like, I'm new at this. Like I'm new at finding invitations. And I say to my son, like my son will say, like, I'll yell at him or, um, give him a punishment that was too harsh. Like no Nintendo for three weeks or something ridiculous yeah. that didn't match the the thing. And he'll say like, why did you do that? That wasn't fair. And I always reminding him and I'm like, this is my, actually my first time being a mom. This is my, I'm new here. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. This is you're a new kid and you don't know what you're doing. And so if like the starting point, we try to have the starting point in our house of like, I'm new here. I'm new to recognizing my envy. I'm new to recognizing, you know, and it just, of the starting point of grace, I think sometimes opens a bit of space for, for those invitations. Yeah. 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 And really these, these passions, as we call them the Enneagram or the sins of the type or whatever you want to call them are the point of so much suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's what compassion means to suffer with. And so we have to do that with ourselves. So when sweet Annie is envious, I have to sit next to her Mm -hmm. um, and ask why that is, um, inquire about, about the envy, Mm -hmm. um, and not interrogate also, 
that's different to inquire mm-hmm. is different than to interrogate. Um, yeah. and it's hard to both hold the fact that you really want something to be different and gone. Like, I just don't want to be envious. Like yeah. I don't want to yeah. compare myself, but yeah. I can't force myself to not because that's just the, that's the like leaves on the tree. Right. There's a lot that's happening in the roots. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, it's, oh, it's hard to be, a human, but I love that. Just sort of, this is the new, this is a new day. This is a new experience. This is a new invitation. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. And I think you have to be able to encounter yourself that way to do the Enneagram work because the opposite would be to say, it's the same story. I'm always this way. There's no options for me. I'm always envious. I'm always comparing. This is my cross to bear. This is who I, and it's like, well, that's a hyper identification that you just, that shuts you down from listening. Yeah. It's not, it's not that we're not these. It's not that we are these. It's that in the middle of these, in a moment by moment, slow work Mm -hmm. kind of way, we get to slowly and gently push back the box Mm -hmm. that we've put ourselves into, right? Or we get to notice those new paths on the well-worn paths that we've been Mm -hmm. walking for so long. No, yeah, I think it's fascinating. I I have to teach at our church on Sunday and it keeps getting, I was supposed to teach last weekend, but then the quarantine started. Yeah. So all of a sudden it got pushed back. And now I think I'm going to be teaching in an empty room online, which is weird. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, we're teaching and we're going through acts right now. And so I've just been having so many conversations with people about how the church was built. Um, this idea of being built in community in, in actual yeah. communities, mm-hmm. um, you know, these churches that met three or four times a week and it wasn't about teaching because they didn't have a lot of that, you know, most people couldn't right. read. And so uh, but this idea of just like building community, you know, being, being, I, uh, you know, I, I'm a extreme introvert and, and so I, you know, when I think about myself, I'm like, oh yeah, of course I, if I can be by myself, I will choose that. That's what I need. But then learning how much just as a human being, we need community yeah. and we need people around us and then, but understanding like how to actually have empathy for people rather than, um, just saying like, well, that's just how so-and-so is. Like, yeah. And so right. d- doing that with yourself, but also doing it with other people. So I think, you know, this is making me rethink a lot of stuff for Sunday is what I'm saying. Whoops. Long story short, <laughs> <laughs> talking about community and that kind of stuff. Cause I think it's just a, we're on this continual journey. Like when you just said that thing about waking up in the morning and being like, this is a new day and this is a new thing. And, and kind of seeing that stuff. I'm also looking at that through the lens of like, we're on this long journey as humanity from point A to whatever. And we're learning to do this together on this trail, all these different personalities, all these different colors and all this stuff. We're trying to figure out how to not just coexist, but to live fruitful with one another, right? Like not just tolerate, but Mm -hmm. like appreciate and empathize and invest intentionally and all that kind of stuff. And I just, the conversation I think is, this is what I'm gleaning from it, or this is what the wheels are turning in my head on this is yeah. how do we, how do we as a church first learn to empathize and love in an intentional way with people who are so different. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously right now with in America with the current political landscape, um, that's becoming increasingly difficult. Yeah. 
Our, but our, you're right. Our, like, what if we said like, oh, that makes sense that you think that way or that you vote that way or that that upset you because that's how you view the world. Yeah. Like, that's different than being like, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. Exactly. So I saw, I have, I don't know. It's thank you for coming on. I think it's a it's a fascinating <laughs> yeah. conversation and yeah, I got a lot in my brain right now. <laughs> I have real interest in doing enneagram work with political work. Oh yeah, yeah. I bet um, that's fascinating. fascinating. Sure. Empathy. So I think empathy and compassion have to be held together, and mm-hmm. they're not the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think of empathy as sort of like I am. I'm feeling things as you feel them. I'm trying to sort of understand what it is like to be you. Yeah. But compassion separates you where you still hold, you need the empathy, um, but you still, you hold on to the, the empathy and then you introduce another thing, which is your experience. Mm. And if I suffer with you, I suffer, suffer with you as me. Mm. Um, and it's actually really important that we have those distinctions because we both need to feel with and, Mm. and we also then need to come alongside. Yeah. That's interesting. I like that. Um, and make a turn because if I'm listening in a coaching situation and this is actually a big problem for me, I'm have such a sense of empathy and a sufferingness about me, which often fours have that we get so pulled into the empathy that it's hard to actually like get outside to see that other things exist. And the truth is there's a lot more that exists than that pain or mm-hmm. that anxiety, right. but we need yeah. to honor the reality of it and the bigness of it. Yeah. And then also, you know, yeah. Yeah. bring along yeah. like that. that's, that's a really, I think that's a very wise um, description and comparison of the two. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, thank you, Annie, so much. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. I love this. Where can people find more of your work if they want to read stuff or read about you or schedule an appointment with you? Yeah. So the best place probably is just my website, enneagramforwholeness.com. Mm-hmm. And then my, I, you know, you can contact me through the website or enneagramforwholeness at gmail.com. I have an Instagram. Um, I haven't, I'm not on it right now. I'm trying to use all my writing and creating energy for my PhD, but, oh, yeah. um, oh, yeah. yeah, but I love, I, I would love to hear from people and I love to hear about, ways people might find this useful in their lives or where they get stuck with using it because the Enneagram also doesn't give you the within it it doesn't give you the tools for how to use it yeah right totally so we really and we really need one another because so much of it is this like is this my false self is this my true self who am I and it's nice to have the um people around us that know us well Yeah. um, yeah yeah to speak into it Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I so appreciate this. And, um, we just is like such a fuller picture of the Enneagram and for me, um, and then also why it matters and how connected, how connected it is. Oh, if you, if you could recommend one book for somebody to read while they're in quarantine, (laughs) you know, since you have time, um, I would recommend there's a lot of different kinds of books, but I really like Beatrice Chestnut's The Complete Enneagram. Okay. And she's a narrative author. So there's stories throughout. She also, if you're a lit nerd, she also uses examples and archetypes from the Odyssey and from 
Yeah, and from uh, Dante. Um, okay. So like the le- levels, are there nine levels in Dante's Inferno? I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So she uses those, really cool, but it's also the 27 subtypes, so you can learn about the three different kinds of each type, which I think is really helpful. So if you're going to dive in, Beatrice. just... Beatrice Chestnut, coolest name ever. Yeah. Um, Beatrice is B-E-A-T-R-I-C-E, and then Chestnut, like the nut. Also, your listeners might be interested. I totally forgot about this, which I shouldn't forget. Um, (laughs) I'm starting a podcast, which will probably be out this fall. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And our first, it's called the Enneagram and but that might change, but that's what we're working with right now. Um, And the first season is about the Enneagram and religion. Oh, so it's all about um, different people of different types experiences of their own um, religion. And so, yeah, should be really fun and dynamic. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Well, you know what? We will. It's not out yet, right? Nope. Okay, so we'll have everyone follow you now. But if they follow me on Instagram or on my website, they'll 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 let you know. And when it comes out, we'll um, do a plug for it too. So that's exciting. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank um, you. And we're so grateful for you. This has been great. Yeah.